All right, so tonight uh, we will finish up <coughs> Deuteronomy, which means, of course, we will finish up the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Uh, last time we were together, we uh, looked at Deuteronomy uh, 31 and, and 32, and what we saw in Deuteronomy 32 especially was the song of Moses. And the song of Moses was a song of judgment. And uh, made that point repeatedly. Last time we were together, you can see, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, verse 19, um, says, Now therefore, the Lord speaking to Moses here, Now therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips in order that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. And so that song was a reminder to the Israelites um, of the warnings of judgment for disobedience to God's law <coughs> and forgetting God and moving into idolatry. Tonight's uh, study will be a little bit more upbeat uh, what we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 33 uh, is an entire chapter where Moses actually blesses uh, Israel uh, right in advance of his death, which we will read about briefly in Deuteronomy chapter 34. The other thing that uh, we, we should say up front, because we'll, we'll make a note of it a couple of different times during the course of Gen um, Deuteronomy 33, is that um, Jacob... Uh, who is also known as Israel, as you know, um, he also blesses the Israelites uh, up, uh, just shy of his death. And, and uh, we saw that back in Genesis chapter 49. And so a couple of times during the course of Deuteronomy 33 this evening, we will do some comparison and contrasting of the blessings that uh, Jacob pronounced on his 12 sons uh, just uh, before his death in Genesis chapter 49. So we'll pick up this evening in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. Verse 2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel, together. So here in the prologue of these blessings, um, we, we have a reminder uh, to Israel of the uh, events surrounding the original um, establishment of the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. So uh, the Lord Yahweh, in verse 2, he comes from Sinai and he dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran. And so the Seir and Mount Paran, those are the surrounding lands and hills um, around Sinai uh, that apparently were also illumined um, by the fact that uh, Yahweh came down uh, at the top of the mountain 
and uh, there was obviously flashes of lightning you see there at the end of verse 2 and you can read actually about these events uh, in the latter portion of Exodus chapter 19 uh, specifically verses 18 through 20 uh, at that um, covenant establishing ceremony that happened there um, and, and then of course we know we've said multiple times that the book of the covenant itself uh, um, is the four chapters Exodus 20 through 23 and then in Exodus chapter 24 is where the Israelites themselves agree to enter into the covenant with Yahweh their God right and so um, there was flashing lightning at the time uh, there were <clears throat> um, verse 2 midst of 10,000 holy ones so he, uh, apparently uh, Yahweh himself was accompanied by angels there which is referenced a couple of other times in the scriptures and he talks in verse 3 about how he loves the people the holy ones are in his hand and they followed in his steps now there's an alternative uh, translation there for verse 3 um, it may read in fact instead of and they followed in his steps or and they followed in your steps it may actually read um, and they lie, lay down at your feet and um, I think this uh, this particular translation has warrant. It may be uh, evidence of the fact that uh, Yahweh came down on Sinai and all of the Israelites were actually at the base of Sinai. Uh, if you remember from Exodus chapter 19, they were commanded not to uh, touch the mountain. Uh, and so they were there, uh, in, in essence, at least figuratively or poetically, at the feet of Yahweh as he came down uh, onto the mountain. And then you can see in verse 4, clearly the law was given, uh, and, and it's referred to here as a, as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. So it is Israel's law. And then in verse 5, something interesting. It says, and he was king in Jeshurun. So let me start with Jeshurun first. I think I failed to mention last time we were together, this, this word Jeshurun, it appears for the first time in the Bible back in the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verse 15. Um, it is a poetic term. It means upright one, and it's re referring to Israel. Um, as far as I can tell, it's only used four times uh, in the entire Old Testament, and three of them happen to be here in Deuteronomy 32 and 33 in the Song of Moses and in the Blessings of Moses. Uh, I believe that the only other time it's actually used in the Old Testament is in the prophet Isaiah. So uh, it is a reference uh, to Israel, and you can see that here in verse 5. He was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel, together. And so it means upright one, and so it's obviously referring uh, to Israel, um, not necessarily in the way that they conducted themselves, but certainly as the, the, the uh, ones who had entered into covenant with Yahweh. The other interesting thing about verse 5 here is it says, And he was king in Jeshurun. Now, I'm reading from a New American Standard Bible, and the pronoun he at the beginning of verse 5 is capitalized. And so the New American Standard translators uh, assumed that the pronoun there was referring to Yahweh, uh, the covenant God of Israel. However, it's not clear uh, whether or not that is a reference to Yahweh or uh, that may in fact be a reference to Moses and uh, actually in the commentaries um, either uh, they're split or some of the commentaries actually uh, speculate uh, on, on both of those. So um, 
it's it's not necessarily clear. It it seems to me that uh, with reference to verse four, the pronoun ver- in verse five, he uh, refers uh, to Moses. At least that's the closest uh, proper noun that we can find. And so it may be uh, making a statement about Moses's leadership of Israel uh, there, since he, of course, was the one who was up on top of the mountain. Uh, with Yahweh, but um, it's it's relatively ambiguous there, and so so you'll have people who will who will articulate both positions. So here in verse six, as we pick up the blessings on the tribes of Israel, begin. So verse six: May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. And this regarding Judah. So so he said. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them. And, and may you be a help against his adversaries. So here we have uh, Reuben and Judah, uh, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, first of all, Reuben uh, is mentioned first as the firstborn of Israel. Uh, and actually, um, you can compare a little bit of the blessings here in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33 with what is said about Reuben back in Genesis chapter 49. Uh, back in Genesis 49, Jacob um, does not have a, a very good or nice things to say about Reuben because if you remember, Reuben ended up sleeping uh, with one of Jacob's concubines and so uh, Jacob was obviously not happy about that. We don't, that's not mentioned here, obviously. It says, may Reuben live and not die. And the New American Standard says, nor his men be few. It's interesting because that conjunction there, nor, it could also uh, be translated and is, is occasionally translated in the Old Testament as though. Um, and so, uh, again, relatively ambiguous, and you'll see commentators pick up on both of those. So it may say, may Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. So it may be a, um, a statement of complete and total blessing, um, or it may say, may Reuben live and not die, though his men uh, be few. Uh, and so it may have a bit of a mixed connotation there. Again, the conjunction is a little bit uh, ambiguous, but clearly a more positive word than what we saw concerning Reuben back in Genesis chapter 49. In uh, verse 7, we see the blessing regarding Judah. And again, this is interesting because um, if you remember, Judah is the fourth born of Jacob. Um, Simeon and Levi are skipped over here uh, in the order of blessing. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a second. But here we have the fourthborn Judah, and the blessing is, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. So uh, this is clearly a statement of complete and utter blessing for the fourthborn Judah. Of course, we know that uh, Judah was an extremely uh, prominent tribe uh, in the history of the people of Israel. Um, so, um, this is clearly a favored blessing that fell on um, David, uh, who was in the line of Judah, and also Jesus our Lord, who was in the line of, of Judah. And it's interesting to note there, it says, and bring him to his people. Uh, and uh, what might be ringing in your ears there in verse 7 is the, uh, the statement in the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 11, where it says that he came to his own, and his own received him not. And so it's a very interesting connection there uh, with this blessing 
on Judah. Um, in verses 8 through 11, we have the blessings on Levi, um, the thirdborn. So, end of Levi, he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim belong to your godly man, whom you proved at Massa, whom you contended with at the waters of Mirabah who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They, you, uh, yeah, they shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they may not rise again. So this is a, a uh, pretty extended blessing here and it is a, 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 a very favorable word to the tribe of Levi, mentioning the Thummim and Urim. Uh, so this would be mentioning um, the, uh, Aaron as the high priest. That's the reference to your godly man there at the beginning of verse 8, who on his ephod kept the Urim and Thummim uh, close to his breast. And then um, it mentions Massa and, and Mirabah. These are a couple of... Um, Episodes that we have already seen in the Pentateuch. So uh, at Massa, uh, there was Exodus 17, and at Mirabah, there was uh, Numbers chapter 20, and these were the two events where the water was brought forth uh, from the rock. And so at Exodus 17, um, Aaron was on the side of Moses when the people were grumbling. Um, however, in Numbers chapter 20, if you would like to go there, it's interesting because it says here in verse 8, whom, uh, with whom you did contend at the waters of Mirabah. So back in Numbers chapter 20, uh, it's uh, interesting. And so that what this means by contending with there, um, Numbers 20, specifically uh, verse 12. So uh, the, the narrative begins in verse 8 of Numbers chapter 20. Um, Again, the people are uh, grumbling about the fact that they don't have water. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 8, Take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So clearly Moses is punished for his anger um, for striking the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. Uh, but Aaron was also caught up in that. And I think that's the reference there uh, in Deuteronomy 33 right there at the end of verse 8. Um, in, in essence, Aaron was punished for the anger and sin of Moses, and so there was some contention there. However, in verses 9 and following, there 
uh, is recounted in the history of Israel uh, some good things that the Levites did. So verse 9, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. So this is a reference uh, to two different episodes in the life of Israel. So the first one was in Exodus chapter 32, which uh, as you probably know in Exodus 32 was the episode with the golden calf. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 32, um, beginning in verse 25, after the uh, incident with the golden calf, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And so the the, the sons of Levi, of course Moses and Aaron were of the tribe of Levi, and so the sons of Levi come and rally to Moses' side. And so that's one aspect of how the Levites actually redeemed themselves in the eyes of the Lord. The other one would be in Numbers chapter 25, verse 7. So, um, if you remember, the Israelites had been mingling with uh, some of the Canaanite or uh, Midianite women. And in uh, Numbers chapter 25, verse 7, after um, this um, is, is Israelite comes and he brings a Midianite woman into the Israelite camp, verse 7 of Numbers 25, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And so you have these two episodes uh, in the the life of the tribe of Levi by which they redeemed themselves uh, in the sight of the Lord. And so then they were set apart by the Lord as the special tribe that could burn incense and burn sacrifices. And so those are the references there in verse 9. And of course, they have responsibilities. You see that in verses 10 and 11. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. So there's a reference here to accepting the sacrifices that the Levites make on behalf of themselves as well as on behalf of the Israelites, right? And so there's this plea by Moses to Yahweh to accept the work of the Levites' hands. Um, so, typically, Simeon and Levi um, are, are mentioned together. Um, Simeon is not mentioned at all in the course of these blessings from Moses. Um, and that is, uh, he's because there's a couple of different reasons that are postulated. One is that Simeon uh, actually never redeemed himself uh, from the episode uh, back in Genesis 34 and the rape of Dinah. And Simeon and Levi were both involved in that episode. But as I said, Levi redeemed himself, as we saw in Exodus 32 and Numbers 25, and Simeon did not. Um, it also may be that if you, if we fast forward to the book of Joshua, where the land of Canaan is allotted uh, to the tribes, the land allotment for Simeon is contained completely within the southern kingdom of Judah. It's kind of an island uh, there in the southern portion of Canaan, surrounded by the land of Judah. And so it may be that Simeon may be swallowed up in the words to Judah as well. But it is interesting to note that the tribe of Simeon 
is not mentioned here uh, in the blessings that Moses provides. Verse 12. Of Benjamin he said, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him, who shields him all the day, and he dwells between his shoulders. And so... um, we see here that Benjamin is beloved of the Lord, dwelling in security. Um, so as you probably know, uh, Benjamin was the tribe that was uh, with the tribe of Judah in the southern kingdom. Um, and so uh, it's, uh, it's, he's dwelling in security there, uh, certainly much longer than the northern kingdom uh, survived by uh, not quite a couple of hundred years. And then uh, you have this, he dwells between his shoulders, and that's related to the the clause right above it where it says, who shields him all the day. And so this dwelling between the shoulders, some commentators see it as um, the head. Um, I personally think, I agree with the commentators that talk about um, something like a breastplate that is protecting the vital organs. I think that fits better with the context talking about shielding Benjamin and allowing him to dwell in security. Verses 13 through 17 um, is the longest portion of blessing here in Deuteronomy 33, so let's read it. And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew, and from the deep lying beneath, and with the choice yield of the sun, and with the choice produce of the months. And with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let it come to the head of Joseph, and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he shall push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth, and those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. And so here, verses 13 through 17, is the longest uh, portion of the blessing, and it is focused on Joseph. And I note here that Joseph also, back in Genesis chapter 49, receives the largest blessing uh, from Jacob as well. And so it is clear here uh, that Joseph continues to be the favored son of Israel. That story goes all the way back uh, into Genesis 37, uh, and where uh, Jacob had given Joseph the coat of many colors because he was clearly the favored one. And that leads, of course, to his brothers hating him and selling him. And then the whole story of how they got to Egypt that uh, allowed for the exodus to happen in the first place. So you got to go all the way back to the middle portion of, of Genesis to, to begin to read about that. But Joseph continues to be the favored son. We see that here. And, and uh, there's a reference in, verse, um, in verses 13 through 15. He's, um, Joseph is getting all of these blessings from the land itself. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh are uh, two of the largest portions of land. So if you remember, Manasseh had uh, half of Manasseh had a portion on the east side of the Jordan River, as well as half of Manasseh had a portion on the left side of the Jordan River. And if you look up on your internet search engine how big those regions were, you can, you can see when you add up Ephraim and Manasseh, those, those constitute a significant portion uh, of those lands that were uh, bequeathed to uh, the Israelites. 
in verse 16, you have the reference to him who dwelt uh, in the bush. And so this is Moses' reference here, poetic reference to Yahweh. And we know that story, of course, from Exodus chapter 3. In the, and it says there at the end of verse 16, uh, it refers to him as the, as the head and also to the one distinguished among his brothers. And I also believe this is a reference to Genesis um, 37. If you remember that Joseph had a dream that really angered his brothers and his parents where his brothers and his parents bowed down to him. And of course, we know that that dream came true. Uh, down in Egypt when Jacob and his uh, se- and the 70 persons of his tribe came down and bowed down to Joseph who was the vice regent of Egypt. The other thing that's going on in verse 17 I believe is this idea it says when th- with them he shall push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. Um, that earth there might be land And it might be a reference to Canaan. And I note here that Joshua, who will be Moses' successor, which we saw last time and we will see as we wrap up this evening as well, Joshua himself is an Ephraimite. And so it will be Joshua, the Ephraimite, who will lead the Israelites into Canaan and he will push the peoples and he will spread the Israelites out to the end of the land. And you can see there at the end of verse 17, and those are the ten thousands of Ephraim and those are the thousands of Manasseh. So Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons of Joseph that were born to him uh, in Egypt. And I would note here that Ephraim is clearly the, the more prominent son And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, uh, Ephraim is often uh, a substitute for the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, for that was where uh, the capital uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel was located in the land that was given to the tribe of Ephraim. That would be Samaria. Verse 18. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call peoples to the mountain. They shall, there they shall offer righteous sacrifices. For they shall draw out the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. So here, um, Zebulun and Issachar, they are wrapped up together uh, in this blessing. And that is because they are both sons of Leah. And uh, they are also neighbors in Canaan. So if you go and again uh, do an internet search for the tribal allotments in Canaan, you will see the tribes of Zebulun and Issachar uh, have portions of land that are right next to each other. And um, so if you compare this uh, back to Genesis chapter 49, specifically verse 13, Zebulun is noted uh, for his uh, access to the, to the sea. That would be the Mediterranean Sea on the west side of the land of Canaan. And then it says, and the hidden treasures of the sand. It's interesting because that could be a reference to Issachar, which, uh, which uh, land portion was inland, in fact, in the northern portion of the land of Canaan. Uh, some actually of the, um, the Septuagint um, versions, um, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, says, and the hidden treasures of the seacoast. So it's very interesting there that uh, the, the Septuagint translators, at least some of the translators there, saw that also as a reference, uh, perhaps, to Zebulun. But this is a, a good word of blessing. 
Apparently they will be uh, righteous uh, in that they will call peoples to the mountain. Uh, that mountain is most probably a reference in the future to Jerusalem, uh, which was Mount Moriah back in Genesis 22. Uh, but the place where the Lord will establish his name and his temple, and it says there they shall offer righteous sacrifices. I note here that later in Chronicles, the men of Issachar are also known as those who understand their times. And so we see uh, that, that Issachar turns out to be a relatively good tribe as Israelite tribes go uh, throughout the history of Israel. Verse 20, And of Gad he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there, there the ruler's portion was reserved. And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. So you may remember that Gad was uh, one of the tribes with Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh that took land on the east side of the Jordan. And that's probably what's being referenced there in verse 21 when it says, Then he, Gad, provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved. And it may be, in fact, that Gad's um, apportionment on the east side of the Jordan was where uh, the Ammonite, uh, at least one Ammonite king, uh, lived, and so that was the portion that he took for himself. And then we see, it says, And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. And so apparently, um, Gad, we see from verse 20, right? He's a lion. He tears the arm, also the crown of the head. He is quite the fighter uh, as a tribe. And the reference here at the end of verse 21 is how he, with the tribe of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, after they had taken their um, land apportionments on the east, East side of the Jordan, they agreed to cross over the Jordan with the other nine and a half or ten and a half tribes, depending on how you count, uh, into the land of Canaan until the land of Canaan was uh, captured and the seven Canaanite kings were destroyed, that they would come in and they would help uh, the Israelites fight to capture that land. And you can see that in verse 21. And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. And so this is clearly a statement of blessing on the tribe of Gad. Verse 22, And of Dan he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. So, a very short word, a blessing here. So, not much to say, to be honest with you. It's interesting to contrast this with what is said about Dan in Genesis 49 from the lips of uh, Jacob. Uh, in Genesis 49, Dan is referred to as a serpent. Um, and uh, in here in Deuteronomy 33, he's referred to as a lion. And so this just may be evidence of some slyness and perhaps a little bit of courage. Uh, the tribe of Dan actually figures prominently near the end of the book of Judges in Judges 17 and 18. Uh, and it's actually not a very um, uh, flattering story of what happens to the tribe of Dan. You can go and read through Gen uh, Judges 17 and 18 if you'd like to see that. So um, not much to say here about the tribe of Dan. Verse 23, 
And of Naphtali, or Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the south, of the sea and the south. And so uh, this is a reference, actually, to uh, the portion of land that, that Naphtali gets uh, in the land of Canaan, which is in the northern portion of Canaan, and it also borders the Sea of Galilee. And so we see here Moses uh, prophesying about the land that Naphtali would get. It is a uh, blessed land. Uh, it's actually uh, referenced in the uh, New Testament as well as, uh, as uh, part of the prophecy of the arrival of, of the Savior Jesus Christ. But that sea there in the south, it's not in the south of Canaan. It's near the south of the apportioned part of Canaan that was given to Naphtali. That would be the Sea of Galilee. Verse 24, And of Asher he said, More blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. Your locks shall be iron and bronze, and according to your days so shall your leisurely walk be. So uh, here this is uh, also a word of uh, favor and blessing, and it, it picks up a little bit on um, Asher's name, which means happy. Um, you can see that back in Genesis when Asher is born. And so uh, he is clearly favored by his brothers, and he has uh, uh, oil in abundance, such that it not only covers his head, but it also runs down onto his feet. In verse 25, an interesting note there, it says, uh, the New American Standard Version that I have in front of me from 1995 says, your locks shall be iron and bronze. Um, the Septuagint there, actually, in Deuteronomy 33, um, says, your sandals shall be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so shall your leisurely walk be. And so it seems as though sandals is probably a better translation there as it's related to uh, the walk. But generally speaking, it seems as though Asher is blessed uh, with abundance and leisure, consistent with his name. Verse 26, as we go to the epilogue here of these blessings, Moses says, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help, and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you, and said, Destroy. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded, in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. And so again, we see very much in contrast with what we saw last time we were together in the Song of Moses. Here are Moses' final departing words to these people whom he has led for the past 40 years through the wilderness. And these are words of blessing. And um, that is a, a blessing on Moses, to be honest with you. And you can see there's none like the God of Jeshua in verse 26. And you can see the eternal God is a dwelling place. That word dwelling place there means refuge. And you can see that the Israelites are encouraged to take refuge in the eternal God underneath and, and underneath his everlasting arms. A promise that God himself would, would make good 
on the promises that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 by driving out the enemies of Abraham's descendants and commanding the Israelites to destroy all of the pagan nations that are there. And then verse 29, this incredible word of beatitude. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. And so this is a testimony to the fact that the the nation of Israel is in history, really and truly, a nation set apart by the one true God of the universe. Of course, to whom much is given, right? much is expected. And that is what we have seen throughout the entirety of the book of the law. When Israel entered into covenant with Yahweh, um, they agreed to abide by His commands, to be obedient to His statutes, that they might live long and prosper in the land. And so we see here Moses declaring them, because of the salvation, see that word there in verse 29, because of the salvation of the Lord, and that's of course referring back to the Exodus proper in Exodus chapter 12, because God Himself saved His people out of Egyptian slavery, they are blessed. And then it is incumbent upon them, of course, to make good on the obedience to the statutes and commands in order to not inherit the land, because that's the promise made to Abraham, but to keep the land once the land was theirs. And so thus ends the words of Moses. So we pick up in chapter 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, that's the Mediterranean, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. So that is, uh, this is obviously an epilogue to the... um, book of Deuteronomy itself, because we can see that the tribal allotments have already been made, um, and so uh, different Jewish writings um, say that either this is these are the writings of Joshua here, or perhaps even uh, Samuel, uh, as he was uh, combing through the books of Joshua. Nonetheless, we can see that the uh, allotments have already been given to the tribes, and these uh, the, the description of these, uh, where Moses was seeing... Um, is uh, all of the land that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15. So the Negev would be as far south as the river of Egypt, and then to the north, when it talks about Ephraim and Manasseh, it's talking about uh, north and northeast toward the Euphrates River Valley, of course, to the Western Sea, which would be the Mediterranean, and then Zoar would also be south of the Dead Sea as well. Um, It is unlikely that Moses, with his normal eyesight, uh, was able to see this far. Uh, And so um, many of the commentators speculate that Moses was given uh, a miraculous vision by God here to be able to see all of the land that Yahweh had promised to Abraham. Verse 4, Then the Lord Yahweh said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. 
but no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And so we see again here these promises that are referenced in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 34, the promises that God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these are previously existing covenants that were still in effect. And uh, you see again this statement in verse 4 about how God does not allow um, Moses to go into the promised land because we cannot get there by the law. We must get there by Joshua, the one uh, through whom the Lord saves. And so Moses dies, verse 5, he's 120 years old. So if you remember, his life was um, a series of three 40-year increments. So the first 40 years of Moses' life, he lived um, very much in riches and pleasure and comfort uh, in the house of Pharaoh. Uh, The next 40 years, he lived basically in wilderness, in exile, away uh, from Egypt. And then when he was 80 years old, he was called by the Lord from the burning bush to come back to Egypt and to be the one who rescued uh, his people, Israel, out of Egyptian slavery. And of course, he took them to the edge of the promised land, as you know, uh, but they chose not to go in that first uh, generation. And so the next 40 years, Moses spent with that first generation of Israel dying and the second generation of Israel coming into being, uh, which is the generation that he has been addressing here during the course of Deuteronomy. And so he lived with them and wandered with them in the wilderness for the last 40 years of his life. And so he was old and he had fulfilled his purpose and he went up on the mountain and died and God buried him. And then you see this tremendous uh, epitaph we have here in verses 10, 11, and 12. And it's no wonder that the Israelites held Moses in such high esteem with this type of language. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And that's a reference to Moses going into the tent of meeting, right? And he went in there, and when he came out, his face shone. And so he had to put a veil over top of it. And then the in verse 11, the references to the signs and the wonders and uh, the ten plagues uh, which the Lord sent Moses to bring down upon Egypt and Pharaoh and all his land. And for all the mighty power, verse 12, and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And this may even be a reference to the idea that, um, going back to Exodus 19, when God came down to Mount Sinai, Moses was the one who was able to go up and stand uh, in the midst and to receive the law from the Lord. So uh, clearly a tremendous uh, figure in redemptive history. All right, so this brings us to the end of the Pentateuch. Um, I'm humbled by it, to be honest with you. Uh, I think I've been so blessed 
right? It's been a long trip for us through the first five books, especially um, from the beginning of, of um, the life of Abram in, in Genesis chapter 12. There's been a lot of detail. And, and here at the end of Deuteronomy, Israel is on the verge of receiving the promise that God made to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12 and 15. Um, and so it's, it's definitely been a long trek. Just as a reminder though, we see that the law through Moses um, cannot get them to where they needed to go. Right? They have to go in according to the promises of God and they need a man named Joshua or Jesus to take them into the promised land. And so with the end of Deuteronomy, the Old Covenant... Uh, has been revealed to Israel and obviously to us through the written word uh, in its fullness. And so now we are prepared, frankly, to begin to draw the contrasts between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. So as we finish up uh, tonight, if you would turn with me to uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. And we will close with this. Hebrews chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 7. The preacher says this, For if that first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, that is the old covenant, that is the covenant that we just got done studying, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second For finding fault with them, Israel, he says, and now there's a quotation from Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he, God, said, A new covenant... He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so now having come through that old covenant, we are ready to now go and to articulate the contrasts between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is a quotation here in Hebrews 8 from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Um, It is the essence of what the new covenant is. And it is also, um, just for trivial purpose, trivia purposes, uh, it is the longest Old Testament uh, quotation in the New Testament. And so it has a very prominent place here, and that is where we will head next. So bless all of you for coming on this uh, journey through the Pentateuch, and uh, I trust we are ready for the next chapter.